You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, so let me give you a little background on, uh, on Austin's research and his interests. Um, the, the work that he was doing, even back in for his master's degree, was on the question of Crimea, Crimea as a homeland, as a homeland for whom, and the sort of place and identity intersection between Crimean Tatars, Ukrainians, and, and Russians in this space. Uh, with the annexation in 2014, he was unable to return, and his project for the dissertation then became a project of following the Crimean Tatars into diaspora, uh, into this condition of internally displaced persons in the rest of Ukraine. Are they refugees or internally displaced since they're in technically the country that Crimea was in but is no longer in? This question of identity in diaspora, the question of internally displaced, the loss of homeland, how that affects identity and the intersection between Ukrainian uh, and Crimean Tatar identity in these, uh, in cities like Kiev and Lviv have been the subject of his research now for five years, really, even a little longer. Mm -hmm. and. Um, and, uh, and, and really provided the centerpiece or the, the focus of attention for his dissertation. So today's project, today's uh, presentation is really going to be an overview of that, of that research uh, that has several publications out now. But to more give you a way. sense of, yeah, more on the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to give you a sense of, of sort of where he was and sort of how he sees this relationship and where it's going. So please join me in welcoming Austin Sharon. Thank you, thank you, Bob. Maybe I should say uh, Grandpa Bob in that case. And, uh, and thank you to Krika, uh, of course, both for having me uh, here as a postdoctoral uh, fellow and for having me as your speaker today. Uh, and just as, as Bob uh, sort of gave in that introduction, I'll, I'll, I'll be talking about uh, the research I've been involved in for uh, several years at this point, even going back in some cases uh, to before the annexation, uh, but then really focusing on, on uh, what's happened in, in the years since. Uh, so let's get right into it here. Uh, I want to give a little bit of a background beforehand. Now, I'm going to presume that pretty much everyone here has some idea of what Crimea is, where Crimea is. If you didn't know before, you probably heard it in the news in, in recent years. Uh, here it is on a map, of course, uh, uh, still the de jure part of Ukraine, but de facto uh, part of Russia now as, as the, the, well, I'd say the occupying forces in Crimea. Uh, but I want to point to a few key dates and events that sort of will help get, get everybody on the same page here as I go forward. Um, going back to 1449, the earliest date I have here with the establishment of the Crimean Khanate. This was a, uh, uh, an entity uh, that um, was sort of a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire at the time, but this is uh, 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 ruled by uh, what became the uh, indigenous peoples of, uh, of uh, Crimea, the Crimean Tatars. It was during this period of the Crimean Khanate when a cohesive uh, ethnic identity sort of 
coalesced within Crimea. It was in 1783 that Crimea was uh, annexed by Russia for the first time by then the, the Russian Empire and uh, incorporated into the Russian Empire and uh, precipitating the uh, displacement of uh, many of the Crimean Tatars that then culminated uh, in 1944 with the uh, deportation of all the remaining Crimean Tatars at that point um, under the, uh, the accusation that they had been, uh, had been collaborating with the German Nazi occupiers during uh, the occupation of Crimea in World War II. Ten years after that, Crimea was transferred from the Russian part of the Soviet Union to the Ukrainian part of the Soviet Union, um, an event that was rather unconsequential at the time, but became very consequential later uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, in 1991, when Ukraine becomes independent, now with Crimea, which by this point, after the deportation of the Crimean Tatars especially, has a majority ethnic Russian population, uh, and pro-Russian sentiments are very strong and heated there uh, with the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. At the same time, the Crimean Tatars are now able to return, beginning about 1988, and uh, really uh, coming in larger numbers after independence. And so there's a, a period of several years in the early 90s when there's some, some, some uh, threat of a Russian separatist movement, uh, some a lot of political contentions with the returning Crimean Tatars and this Russian majority. And of course, in 2014, most recently, uh, was when uh, following the Euromaidan revolution in, uh, in Kiev, we have the second annexation of Crimea by Russia, this time by the Russian Federation. Uh, and briefly, the, uh, some uh, demographic information here with the Crimea's population. This is from the last Ukrainian census, which was already 18 years ago. We haven't had one since uh, 2001, so uh, take that with a grain of salt here, because this is some old, old numbers. But it's about 60% ethnically Russian, about 25% ethnically, ethnically Ukrainian, 12% Crimean Tatars after their return. And of course, these are the indigenous people. They're Turkic Muslims, very different from the Slavic population here, uh, and a, a small group of, of smaller minorities as well. Uh, now, as Bob uh, mentioned, I've been involved in uh, work relating to Crimea for quite a while, uh, quite a while now. Here I am uh, proving it's in Crimea with the graffiti right in the background that says Crimea. Uh, this is me in Simferopol back in uh, 2011, um, doing uh, work, field work that ultimately uh, became the basis of my master's thesis. Um, I had already been involved in Crimean research for a few years before this. I had a Fulbright uh, in Simferopol straight out of my undergrad in 2008-2009, uh, where I sort of started getting interested in, in some different topics there that ultimately led me towards this question of Crimean regional identity that I, I picked up on while I was there initially and, and determined that this was a really interesting phenomenon that I wanted to uh, investigate more. So with that in mind, I want to, uh, before I uh, launch into my, my more re recent research related to Crimean IDPs, I want to just mention a, a couple points from that research I did in 2011 that will help us build a, a basis for understanding what's going on now. Um, so while I was there in 2011, I, I conducted a survey uh, that tried to get at these questions of regional identity and what it means to be Crimean versus Ukrainian versus ethnically Russian, et cetera. And uh, one of the uh, things I had on my survey was uh, a, an opportunity for the respondents to draw a map of their homeland. I gave them a, a blank space and said, draw a map of your homeland and mark the three most impl important places on it. Uh, and then I sort of tallied up uh, the map scales that, that, that resulted from that, so the, the sort of the, the geographic scale of what they considered their homeland. And I'll just highlight here, briefly, you see Crimea itself, right, just by itself, uh, was the majority or, uh, you know, the uh, pluralistic uh, result for, for uh, the three main ethnic groups here, for Russians, Ukrainians, and Crimean Tatars. Crimean Tatars, of course, as the indigenous people came out uh, far ahead in the, in the Crimea category here, almost 80% saying, yes, Crimea is our homeland. Uh, but large numbers of ethnic Russians and Ukrainians as well, almost half of ethnic Russians and a little over 40% of ethnic Ukrainians. Um, here's just a, a few examples of some of the maps I have. These are, I have you know, hundreds of these. It was pretty fascinating to, to comb through these and see what people drew, but some uh, representative examples here. Just Crimea, and little hearts around the cities. This is the Tamga, the national symbol of the Crimean Tatar, sort of putting a, an ethnic label right uh, and brand right on the map there. And of course, some like this that show all of Ukraine and some that reflect the uh, discourse that would come to the fore a few years later uh, in this uh, sort of Russian uh, upswelling of Russian nationalism behind uh, the, uh, the annexation, where you have Russia, of course, and then Crimea attached to it. I don't know if you can read this, but it says Sevastopol, uh, Ruski and Rasiski Gord, so a Russian city both in the ethnic and the, the civic sense. So clearly, there was a strong sense of, of this uh, Russian uh, pride happening uh, well before the annexation. Um, and interestingly, uh, and relevant to, uh, to the events that would happen a few years later, I also asked respondents then what they thought Crimea's uh, political status should be. 
and I, then I broke these down by, by ethnic categories here. I split up Ukrainians in this case to Russified Ukrainians who claimed Russian as their first language and non-Russified Ukrainians who claimed Ukrainian. And so um, if you may recall the uh, results of the referendum on uh, Crimea's ascension to the Russian Federation returned something like 96% in favor of, uh, of joining Russia, which is a pretty absurd number. There have been a lot of uh, reasons why pointed out why that's not to be trusted. Uh, and another reason not to trust that is some of the results I saw here during my survey uh, a few years ago uh, before that, which showed even among ethnic Russians, like yes, there's a, a large uh, number who would prefer Crimea be a part of Russia, both the red bar and the sort of purplish bar here represent the preference for joining Russia either as an autonomous republic or as an oblast. Uh, but even those two combined only amounts to a little bit more than maybe 60%. Right, A quarter of the Russians at that time um, preferred remaining in Ukraine, either as an autonomous republic or an oblast, uh, while all the other groups, it's a minority of uh, respondents who, who said that they wanted it to be part of Russia. So um, should uh, you know, add some further nuance to the, to the results that we saw of that, in that referendum in 2014. Uh, but I want to point out that if we combine the red uh, colors here and the blue colors together, those represent a preference for autonomy, whether it's in Ukraine or in Russia. And if we, see, we look at those uh, categories here, we see that the preference for autonomy is far greater than the preference for uh, not autonomy, just for, for getting the status of a, of a province or an oblast. And I sort of uh, interpret that to be a reflection of this strong, re and a, sort of a political manifestation of the strong uh, regional identity that came through in that homeland map uh, exercise as well. So this is just sort of laying some groundwork here for understanding that there's a very strong sense of Crimean regional identity, a sense among all the people from all the ethnic groups in Crimea that they have a certain sense of belonging to Crimea specifically, okay? So along comes 2014, of course, and uh, by this point, I kind of pixelated there, oh well. <laughs> by this point, I had completed my work in Crimea and I was ready to move on to a new topic um, for, my, for my PhD and for my dissertation. Actually, my plan was to look at Siberian regional identity. Uh, but then 2014 happens, Russia's annexed, Suddenly, or excuse me, Crimea is annexed by Russia. Suddenly, Crimea is uh, being spoken of on all the, you know, by people around the world, and suddenly on all the, the, the headlines and on the news. And I realized, oh, I'd, I'd be crazy to turn away from a Crimean topic now that I've sort of built, already built up this expertise in a way, and I'm well positioned to, you know, comment on and, uh, and do research on, the, on this topic that now has a lot of people's attention. And at the same time, in the political fallout of these events between Russia and the West, the prospect of doing the work I wanted to in Siberia became uh, more and more difficult. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna have to turn away from this topic. Uh, but I was uncertain for a while about how I could sort of parlay my previous research in Crimea into a new topic, while Crimea was essentially now off limits to a, a Western researcher like me, given the new uh, political situation there. Uh, so I kind of was waffling on the idea of switching back to a Crimean topic for a while uh, until I was sort of drawn to these, uh, this emerging crisis of internal displacement within Ukraine that was a result, firstly, of the annexation of Crimea, and following that, uh, the war in eastern Ukraine uh, that uh, began a few months after the annexation. Um, so here's a map. It's a little out of date at this point. This is from uh, January 2018, so the numbers have fluctuated a bit, but this shows the number of internally displaced peoples in the different regions of uh, Ukraine as a result of both the annexation of Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine. Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of this number come from eastern Ukraine, right? There's a violent conflict there. People have been, you know, their homes and, and communities have been destroyed. They've been uh, forced out under uh, very urgent and violent conditions. So the numbers there are, are much higher than they are from, from Crimea. Uh, the exact number of Crimean IDPs is not known exactly. I've heard estimates ranging from about 20,000 to 100,000. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, so Crimean IDPs do represent sort of a minority within this uh, larger group of, of IDPs in Ukraine. Uh, but since there's, I know there's to be something interesting going on with identity and how people relate to Crimea versus Ukraine, of course I'm, I'm drawn to this, this Crimean question here. And the spark, the thing that, the discovery really that uh, pointed the way towards my, my, the topic that became the topic of my dissertation was my discovery of this organization, uh, Crimean Diaspora, Krimskaya Diaspora, you see on the sign here. Uh, this is an organization that was founded by uh, IDPs from Crimea shortly after they arrived in Kiev, uh, right after the annexation. Uh, these are ethnic, uh, primarily uh, a group of ethnic Russians from Crimea who founded this. It is an organization that was founded uh, to assist uh, incoming IDPs initially from Crimea, but then from uh, the Donbass as well as that war got underway. 
uh, an organization to help them out logistically, financially, um, legally, um, humanitarian, and humanitarian, humanitarian ways as well. So uh, an organization based in Kiev, but what really got me was their use of this word diaspora. Right? And my understanding of a diaspora is a group that has crossed an international border, right? A group that has left their home in one country, uh, crossed an international border, and is now uh, based in putting down roots in another country. This is the way diaspora is usually understood. This is the way diaspora is usually written about and talked about. And when I saw this, I, I thought, oh my god, there's a group of internal migrants here, internally displaced people, still within the country where they're citizens and where they live, but they're referring to themselves as a diaspora. So this really confounded a lot of the, uh, the standard understandings of what a diaspora is and what it means to be a diaspora. So this was my sort of shining beacon as I was uh, looking for a new topic and a way, a way forward to research Crimea in a way that related to the work I'd already done, uh, but which was also related closely to what was happening uh, currently in Crimea. So I, asked, I started asking the question, can we talk about a group of internal migrants as a diaspora? So there have been a number of uh, diaspora specialists who have proposed various rubrics and sort of uh, tables for understanding what uh, kind of characteristics there are among different diasporas. And just a few that are common to some of these rubrics here, right? A sustained relationship with an estranged homeland, real or imagined. Now, I know from my own work that many of the, uh, of the, of the people in Crimea do understand Crimea as their homeland. So that sort of makes sense to me, right? They're outside their homeland, then maybe this idea of diaspora fits. Uh, there's also an understanding that they tend to be ethnically cohesive. Now, that doesn't fit so well for all the different people from Crimea. I know there's uh, Crimean Tatars, there's ethnic Russians, ethnic Ukrainians. So is there any sense of cohesion among that group in a diasporic way, or is it uh, more atomized? And of course, uh, there's this idea that a diaspora is inherently transnational. In other words, that they emerge only through international migration, through migration across an international border. There's often, it's often said that uh, diasporas are the exemplary community, the transnational movement. This is a common quote used to describe diasporas. Now, these frameworks for understanding what diasporas are and how they function has been criticized by a number of, of specialists, right? Some have said that this is too simplifying, it homogenizes diasporic experiences and identities. Others point that diaspora is better understood as a discourse, right? It's really a description, right? It's a way of understanding what it's like to be displaced from an original you know, place of origin and to put down roots somewhere else and the sort of the, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, disjunction between the two. Um, but within the field of geography and political geography specifically, uh, a number of geographers have criticized diaspora's transnational problem. This idea, again, that you have to cross an international border to become a diaspora. Um, this is part of a broader uh, criticism of our geographic imaginations that tend to view the nation state as sort of this spatial container of, uh, of identities and of, of uh, experiences and of, of properties and characteristics, right? And that if you have migration between these two containers, right, that's a fundamentally different process than, say, migration within those containers, right? That once you cross from one container to another, you become a fund fundamentally a different thing than you would if you're simply traveling within it, right? There's this idea called uh, the territorial trap by uh, political geographer John Agnew who sort of made, made this term famous within geography is this limitation on the way we, we think about the way space is divided and how nation-state borders sort of um, you know, put these limitations on the way we think about movement and whatnot within a geographic framework here. So to overcome this uh, transnational problem within diaspora, or not specifically within diaspora, but just with uh, a critique of transnationalism generally, has been this idea of translocalism as an alternative framework which uh, concerns linkages and interactions between discrete locations that don't necessarily cross an international border. So sort of viewing migration and um, communication and, and uh, you know, linkages between people and, and places uh, without privileging the nation states. So seeing international migration, for example, and internal migration as two sides of the same coin, as two aspects of the same process, without privileging those journeys that do cross international border. So, the question becomes, how can we think about diaspora as a translocal phenomenon rather than a transnational phenomenon, and how can Crimean IDPs help us understand this? So this is sort of the, the foundation of my dissertation topic. Uh, and so to get at the answers, to, to better understand this question, I went uh, to Ukraine with uh, NSF funding for my, uh, my dissertation field work, uh, and I took an ethnographic approach 
um, referring to uh, sort of do this qualitatively rather than quantitatively, right? To look, uh, to get uh, down into the weeds and to talk to uh, Crimean IDPs from all types of backgrounds, to understand their experiences and to understand um, how they see themselves as being, you know, belonging to the place they came from, belonging to where they are now, um, etc. So I did most of my work in uh, Kiev and Lviv, the two cities that have sort of emerged as the two major destinations for Crimean IDPs. Uh, all in all, I conducted 94 interviews. 86 of those were with Crimean IDPs themselves. A few other with uh, some experts and, and people who, who could uh, provide insight into some of these questions as well. Uh, I did a number of, uh, a few focus groups, a number of participant observation sessions. Uh, and I also ended up doing an online survey uh, just to some, provide some descriptive statistics without really getting into a, a statistical uh, analysis of that. So here I am in the field uh, interviewing the founder of that uh, organization, Crimean Diaspora, there on the left. Uh, meeting with a Crimean Tata family here. This is a prominent Crimean Tata businessman, actually, and, and uh, owner of uh, the uh, Crimean Tata television network, ATR. Um, so, just to give a little bit of uh, information about uh, who these people are, right? Who, who are we talking about? Uh, I have some, some survey uh, results that I want to share that just um, will help us situate these people a little better. Uh, Compared to the actual population of Crimea itself that I put up in one of those first slides, right? Remember, uh, Russians represented about 60% of the population. Uh, Ukrainians were 25%. Crimean Tatars 12%. Uh, we have a very skewed um, sample here, and keep in mind this is an online survey. It's not, uh, you know, totally representative. It's not a, a random, you know, randomly uh, gathered sample. So take this with a grain of salt. Um, but it does hint at some of the trends here. I think. Uh, that you certainly have a, a disproportionately large number of Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars versus a disproportionately smaller number of ethnic Russians, right? Makes sense, right? Maybe the Russians are more likely to want to stay put once they, once they uh, have been uh, brought over to Russia, whereas Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars might be driven out in greater numbers. But it's important to note that there are ethnic Russians among those who have uh, decided to, to relocate to mainland Ukraine. Uh, looking at the median age, uh, Compared to the uh, recent figure for a median age of Ukrainians in general, it was about 40.4. Uh, 40 uh, the median age of, of uh, Crimean IDPs is a bit younger, 36. Uh, 31 for Crimean Tatars, so it's a good, significantly uh, younger po uh, population of Crimean Tatars here. Uh, one of the more remarkable uh, results here was that the IDPs are extremely well educated. Uh, it was 88.7% of respondents uh, had the equivalent of at least a bachelor's degree. Many of them uh, the equivalent of a graduate degree. And I know this is, again, not uh, representative uh, per se, but still it was a rather remarkable uh, figure that leapt out at me from these results. So very highly educated, also very highly urban dwelling. 95% of respondents said that they had come from one of Crimea's cities, one of their urban areas, largely from Simferopol, um, a good number from Sevastopol, the other large city, uh, but from many of the other cities in Crimea as well. So. These results suggest that Crimean IDPs may, might be, might say that they represent something of the region's urban elite or intelligentsia, if you want to use, use that expression. And there's a question of why they left Crimea. Uh, this is a complicated question. I have a paper published on this question that uh, uses a number of these different uh, themes that emerged in my interviews. There, the paper argues against this sort of simplistic breakdown of migration as being either forced or voluntary. This is sort of an, an ambiguous question whether or not someone's forced to move in this case. Um, but we could break down some of the main reason, uh, reasons why they, they did leave Crimea. There's some that are economic and logistical in their basis, right? Crimea has been isolated uh, from Ukraine and from the rest of the world at large by sanctions and embargoes, right? Transportation to Crimea has become severely limited. Flights are only available between uh, Crimea and mainland Russia now, for example. Uh, sanctions and embargoes have driven up the prices there. Uh, there's been a big drop in tourism, right? One of Crimea's largest industries uh, as a result of the annexation. Credit cards and access to Ukrainian banks have been blocked. Uh, Crimean universities are no longer accredited outside of Russia, so a lot of students have left to attend university in mainland Ukraine instead. Uh, but some of the more urgent issues are related to political and humanitarian, uh, the, the humanitarian situation in Crimea. Uh, there are threats of violence and persecution towards activists, journalists, those who are openly pro-Ukrainian in their views. Uh, there's been specific targeting of the Crimean Tatar community, uh, typically using the specter of Islamic, uh, Islamic extremism, right? using these 
extremism laws to, to go after Crimean Tatars, typically who uh, are more outwardly uh, chaste in their religious practices, you might say, right? Who the uh, families with women who, who do wear the hijab and men who grow their beards out. Uh, these have been uh, made the target of, of home searches and, and uh, uh, politically motivated arrests. Uh, the uh, group Hizbut Tahrir, which is sort of a fundamentalist, uh, you know, pan-Islamic group uh, that is illegal in Russia, but not uh, but uh, legal in Ukraine, uh, has been a major target of, of some of these laws. There's been many of them who are associated with group, this group who left Crimea for mainland Ukraine pretty much immediately after the uh, the annexation, and there's been accusa accusations of association with this group uh, leveled at other Crimeans, uh, Crimean Tatars who remain. There's a lot of uh, demoralization, disillusionment, alienation by the spread of, of uh, sort of this rampant chauvinism that, that uh, many of my uh, research participants described, and just uh, these uh, results of the Russian takeover. Um, and also, of course, loyalty to Ukraine, refusal to accept Russian, Russian citizenship has also motivated many people uh, to leave for the mainland. Uh, I have a quote here from Rafat Chubarov, who is one of the uh, premier political leaders of the Crimean Tatars, was a member of the Ukrainian parliament until just recently, in the last parliamentary elections. Um, he says that under the occupying regime, any person who is even mildly prominent, it can be a journalist, a small-time social activist, a teacher, a doctor, or even some person selling produce in the bazaar, he must constantly affirm and demonstrate his loyalty to the Ukrainian state. Lacking loyalty is a threat. Lacking loyalty is grounds for the authorities to come after you sooner or later, or to call you in for interrogation, or go after your children, and so forth. So there's a real sense of fear, particularly among Crimean Tatars in Crimea, that's motivated so many of them to relocate. And oh, sort of got offset here a little bit, but uh, and don't be alarmed by this text. I'm not going to read through this. I just want to throw this up here for a moment uh, to get back to this uh, diaspora question. To think about okay, how can we think about this question of whether they constitute a diaspora? And so going back, I mentioned there's been a number of proposed rubrics for for detailing the characteristics that we can attribute to diaspora groups. Uh, and this is uh, probably one of the best, one of the most extensive, proposed by you can read it under there by Robin Cohen. Uh, this is his, his list of, of uh, diasporic characteristics, right? And it's very long and extensive, and I'm not going to go into them, but I just want to uh, put this up and to say that I did go into all of these into my dissertation. I did pretty much address point by point each of these, these uh, supposed characteristics of a diaspora and compared them uh, to the situation for Crimean IDPs. And long story short, yes, they do meet a lot of these criteria. Um, but again, this, this, the problem here is that this really just frames diaspora as, as a label, as I mentioned before. That there's been criticism that it's not just a description, not just a label you can slap onto a group and say, okay, they meet these criteria, they're a diaspora, right? I'm, I'm more interested in thinking about you know, what diaspora means qualitatively, what it means to understand oneself as a diaspora, to use diaspora as sort of this, this framework for, for understanding your identity and your, your place in between here and there, between where you came from and where you are now. So, alternatively, both these in this case, right? I looked at all these, but also I, I pay a lot of attention to this idea of the tension between uh, discourses and perceptions of being simultaneously, be, uh, of, on one hand, belonging to Ukraine and to where they're now living, uh, and to a sense of exclusion, or not that they're excluded by others, but their own sense of being um, in a place where they aren't necessarily, or they don't necessarily belong, the sense that they come from somewhere else and they've been displaced to, to somewhere somewhat alien, right? So it's this tension between being in place and out of place simultaneously is, is what I want to get at with understanding what diaspora means in this case. So, on the one hand, I looked at discourses and practices of what I call Ukrainianness, or this idea that Crimeans are a part of, of Ukraine, are Ukrainian citizens, see themselves as part of Ukraine, etc. cetera. Uh, now, contrary to much of what's been written in the wake of the annexation, when you look at the, the basic facts, right, well, supposedly 96% of Crimeans voted to join Russia, right? There's simplistic uh, equations with uh, Russian speakers and ethnic Russians with preferring to be part of Russia, right? I think Trump made this statement at some point, like, oh, they're all, they're all Russian speakers, so they want to be part of Russia anyways, right? Contrary to that belief, uh, there have been uh, Ukrainian identities prevailing and blossoming within Crimea um, since uh, Ukrainian independence that's largely gone under the radar. Uh, and so, for example, in my online survey that I conducted, I asked them to rate, on a scale of one to five, the, uh, the question, how important is being a citizen of Ukraine to your self-identity? And so you can see across the board, it's rather high, above, uh, right about or above four and a half 
uh, an average of 4.5 out of 5 uh, for every ethnic group here. Right? Ukrainians, maybe not surprisingly, come out uh, the highest, just a little bit ahead, though, of, uh, of some of the other groups. So, and of course, there's some self-selection right here. This is the, these are the Crimeans who decided to relocate to mainland Ukraine rather than to stay under Russian occupation. So there's already going to be some bias there. But I think it, I think it, uh, you know, it's interesting to, to think about the fact that there have been these, these strong Ukrainian identities uh, growing in, in uh, Crimea uh, when nobody really presumed that they would be. So uh, here's a, uh, an image that sort of gets to this point, right? One guy, these are presumably both uh, Crimeans. Well, this guy's got a shirt that says Crimean Ukrainian right there. And this guy's uh, draped himself in the Ukrainian flag, right, at a demonstration. And so one of the more fascinating aspects of my research was discovering these narratives about how people in Crimea came to discover or understand or develop their own sense of being Ukrainian. Right? It happened in different ways for different people. Some it was sort of a gradual process through childhood, especially for younger people who were born and raised in uh, independent uh, Ukraine. Uh, for others, it happened sort of spontaneously in some cases during the Maidan, as this quote we'll, we'll get to, I'll read in a moment. Uh, in some cases, it was during the Orange Revolution in 2004, a uh, sort of moment of hot uh, uh, nationalism when uh, it all came to the fore and people sort of had this, this outburst of, of pride coming, coming out while they're on the, on the square and demonstrating. Um, but this, I, this is one of my favorite parts of, of the field work. It's learning, it's hearing these stories about how, how people sort of came around to their own Ukrainianness. So I'll, I'll just read a couple quotes here. This is from an ethnic Russian woman in her 20s. She said, I never considered myself to be from Russia, but I considered myself ethnically Russian. In principle, I had never been to Russia. I don't know how they live there, but when I was 14, I started asking myself, who am I, Russian, Ukrainian? I thought about it for a long time, and I tried to understand it. At, at, at that age, this question really started to nag at me. It's funny, I wrote poetry about this question, and I kept a diary in the fifth grade, and now I've started considering the things I did as a child. I started revisiting those writings and came to understand that I had decided at age 14 that I am more Ukrainian. It's not even that I was more Ukrainian, it was just a question of the country where I was born. I was born in Ukraine, and that means I'm Ukrainian, period. Sort of this, you know, teenage logic sort of going through how understanding who she is and where she belongs. Uh, but then this quote is rather interesting from a Crimean Tatar man in his 40s that described his experiences on the Maidan during the Euromaidan protests as being the moment where he really, it, it all came together for him, his understanding that he is part of this sort of Ukrainian nation. He says, uh, I now know the Ukrainian national anthem by heart. I didn't know it before, just a few words in the melody. I would always uh, place my hand on my heart when they would uh, play it at a football match, but I never sang it. I just stood. I sang it with soul for the first time when I was on the Maidan, when almost a million people were singing it. I understood it then, and for me, that was a, my, a moment of clarity, that I'm a Ukrainian citizen, just the same. Right. And so, speaking of the Crimean Tatars, this was one of my... Uh, one of the more fascinating aspects of the research I did, I think, and it's actually a big part of where my, my research is going from here. Um, this question of how Crimean Tatars came to understand themselves as part of, Ukra of the Ukrainian civic nation, right? So to, give, to, to revisit some of those historical facts that I mentioned at the beginning, right, they were deported from Crimea in 1944, and it was in 1954 that Crimea became a part of the Ukrainian part of the Soviet Union. Prior to that, Crimea had never been attached politically to Ukraine, it had never been governed or administered or ruled uh, from Kiev before. There was never a direct association with Crimea and Ukraine. Uh, but then when they returned, after their decades of exile, they returned to a Ukrainian Crimea uh, just on the eve of Ukrainian independence. And so uh, seeing Russia as their historical aggressor and antagonist, they sort of quickly realized that it was in their own interest to align with Kiev and to support Ukrainian sovereignty over Crimea at a time when there's a strong sort of Russian separatist movement brewing. Uh, and so as you could say, it was sort of a strategic decision early on uh, to embrace uh, Crimea's part as, uh, of, uh, Crimea as a part of Ukraine. Uh, but in the time since, Crimea, since Ukraine became independent, uh, there has been a rather remarkable transition among Crimean Tatars to understanding themselves sincerely and deeply as part of a Ukrainian civic nation, especially among those who uh, were born and raised within an independent Ukraine, within Crimea as part of Ukraine. Uh, and so I, I asked a lot of my uh, Crimean Tatar interviewees this question, like, when did you, like, what, why was it that Crimean Tatars were so eager to embrace Ukraine? 
and some pointed like, oh, there's these historical links, right? The Khanate and the Cossacks, you know, they fought alongside each other against the Poles and the Russians, and they sort of been reevaluating their historical linkages on the one hand. Um, but my favorite answer came from uh, uh, this one guy, Crimean Tatar guy in his 40s here. He said, Ukraine did not oppress us. Ukraine is the first country in the last 200 some odd years that didn't touch the Crimean Tatars. Crimean Tatars felt fine in their homeland, right? This idea that even though Ukraine wasn't able to offer much in the way of sort of financial assistance as they, as they returned uh, from exile and uh, tried to regain uh, access to land and to sort of rebuild their communities, there's been some criticism that Kiev sort of uh, dropped the ball in that case. Uh, but they were simply grateful that, you know, they didn't, they didn't move to oppress them the way that, that the Russians had, and the, 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 relationship, uh, the way their relationship with Russia had been defined for so long. So I thought that was the most direct, the direct answer that I got to that question. Um, but this quote here is one of the more rem remarkable ones, I thought, from a very young Crimean Tatar woman in her early 20s that really sort of flips this idea of Crimea being the homeland for Crimean Tatars even. She says, to tell you the truth, my relatives all say that our homeland is Crimea, the homeland of Crimean Tatars. Most of those who are older than me were born in Asia, Uzbekistan primarily, uh, before they started returning to Crimea. And so, and so for them, their homeland is Crimea, the homeland of their ancestors, of their parents, of their grandmothers and grandfathers. But I was born in Crimea, and for as long as I can remember, this was, uh, uh, this was Ukraine. Therefore, Crimea, Crimea isn't my homeland so much as all of Ukraine. I'm not only a patriot of Crimea, Ukraine probably comes first for me. Ukraine as a whole is my homeland, and then Crimea. Maybe my parents and my relatives will judge me for this and think that it's not right, that I am Crimean Tatar, so Crimea should come first. But for me, it's Ukraine. I don't know why. So it speaks to the power of uh, perhaps in, uh, institutions and sort of growing up in a Ukrainian institutional milieu that really uh, directed her sense of, of you know, sense, uh, sense of self and belonging uh, towards the Ukrainian state rather than just Crimea itself. Uh, and along, along with this, there have been uh, a sort of a surge in discourses of, of uh, Ukrainian civic nationhood. Uh, in the wake of, of the Euromaidan. These are uh, ideas that have been around since before the Euromaidan, but they've really been ascendant in the wake of, uh, of uh, the Russian aggression and then the, the sort of hot moment of, of nationalism that, that emerged on the Maidan. Uh, a part of this is a rejection of uh, Ukrainian ethno-nationalism, which still remains, right? There's strong ethno-nationalist groups who sort of see Ukraine as a place for ethnic Ukrainians alone, um, but there's sort of a dismissal of these ideas in, this, uh, in, in the face of this growing sense of you know, being Ukrainian no longer means just being ethnically Ukrainian, but you can be Russian and be Ukrainian, you can be Crimean Tatar, be Ukrainian, you can be any number of, you know, have any number of ethnic identities and still be part of this civic Ukrainian nation. Um, and there's been a redefining of Ukrainianness as a set of values, you might say. So uh, a quote from a Crimean Tatar woman in her 40s, she says, Ukrainians started to respect us because before they feared us. There, a side note, there had always sort of been these, uh, these uh, mis, uh, misrepresentations and apprehensions about Crimean Tatars among many uh, Ukrainians that uh, you know, they weren't truly uh, loyal to the Ukrainian state, that they saw uh, you know, had stronger affinities with Turkey, and that given the chance, they would like to you know, break Crimea off and go to Turkey, et cetera. Uh, but this sort of change, this perception changed after 2014. I said earlier, there are fears that Crimean Tatars are closer to Turkey than to Ukraine that they will give Crimea away, but now they understand that Crimean Tatars see themselves as part of Ukraine, not Turkey, not Russia, not America, not anywhere else. We only see ourselves as part of Ukraine. And this has had a really positive effect on, our relationship, on uh, their relationship towards us. Uh, and in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over this uh, quote, but this is from a leading uh, Muslim authority in the country who sort of says the same idea, that it's not about your, your religious background, your ethnic background, but sort of your, your values that sort of defines your Ukrainianness now. Uh, but alongside this idea of being Ukrainian among Crimean IDPs, there is still these persistent ideas that they're Crimean, right? That they truly have this stronger connection to Crimea and that really that's where they belong. Uh, and I divide this into uh, two categories, Crimeanness and Crimean Tatarness. So of course, Crimean Tatarness referring to the sense of being Crimean Tatar and relating to Crimea from this sort of indigenous perspective. And uh, Crimeanness being the way that Slavic Crimeans generally feel about being from Crimea. Right. Um, I love this picture of this, this boy waving the Crimean Tatar flag high above sort of the limp Ukrainian flag in this case, sort of uh, illustrates that point fairly well. And again, here's a result from the survey asking how important is uh, being from Crimea to your self-identity rather than to Ukraine. And of course, Crimean Tatars come, come far ahead, 4.83, average out of five, much higher than the other groups, but still pretty high across the board. So there's still a sense that 
you know, they belong to Ukraine, even though, or to Crimea, even though they're also part of this, of this uh, broader national community. So some notes on Crimean Tatarness, right? This refers to a sense of being from Crimea in this indigenous way, relating to this land and this territory as an indigenous person. And have, not only indigenous, I should note, but autochthonous, meaning sort of emerging and coming into being in this place in particular, right? The, the way that Crimean Tatars understand their own ethnogenesis is that uh, a number of sort of nomadic and people, settlers, and from a bunch of different cultures and, and uh, groups over the millennia, really, all sort of came and settled in Crimea successively, and then under the rule of the Crimean Hanate, coalesced into a cohesive ethnic community. And so there's, uh, within the Crimean Tatar ethnos, there's a lot of there's like three, there's three different uh, tribal groups in it that are sort of linked to different groups, but they have all come together as one people of Crimea. Um, there's also a sense of belonging to Crimea as being inherited, as being intergenerational. It's passed down from, from you know, mother to child. Uh, and this was really uh, demonstrated during their, de uh, their uh, decades of exile in Central Asia, where they maintain this really, really strong um, national movement for the right to return to Crimea. And even those born in, in uh, Central Asia uh, carried this idea forward and uh, maintained this really strong intergenerational connection to Crimea. Uh, and they also see a cyclical pattern of displacement and dispossession of their homeland, beginning first with the first annexation of Russia, uh, of Crimea by Russia, then with the deportation, and now again with the, the annexation and the uh, uh, cyclical displacement of people as a result. And so, excuse me, and again I'll, I'll just uh, provide one quote here. Uh, this from uh, Mustafa Jamilev, who is the, uh, by far the leading uh, authority of, of the leader of the Crimean Tatar people. He was the primary figure of the Crimean Tatar national movement for years and is, uh, is the de facto leader in all, in all senses of the word nowadays uh, for the Crimean Tatars. And as he told me in an interview, he said, every nation has their land, their homeland. During the few decades after their deportation, the Crimean Tatars fought desperately to return to Crimea, not because it's beautiful there with the Black Sea and the mountains, we probably would have struggled to return even if it was just a barren step, because that is where our nation was formed. That is where the graves of our ancestors are located. Any further perspectives for the existence and development of our nation are found only in our home, in our land. And so this really, really sort of deep, spiritual, almost metaphysical connection to Crimea uh, is, is how Crimean Tatars understand themselves and, and their relationship to Crimea. Uh, now Crimeanness, on the other hand, uh, you might say is somewhat superficial compared to Crimean Tatarness. It relates more to affinities for Crimean's natural environment, a strong sense of place attachment. Topophilia is a term coined by uh, former uh, University of Wisconsin geographer uh, Yifu Tuan, um, sort of meaning love of place, right? Sort of this strong emotional connection to the place you're from. Uh, and often there's a sense of self-imposed regional isolation. I heard repeatedly that many Slavic Crimeans sort of disregard uh, you know, Ukraine, Russia, the rest of it. They never leave Crimea. They're sort of uh, isolate themselves within within the region. They think, oh, it's the this is the best place. Why go anywhere else? There's actually a, an expression. It's для нас за перекопом земли нет, right? The перекоп is sort of the uh, little isthmus that connects Crimea to Ukraine. It says there's no land for us beyond the перекоп. So the sense that this is this is all we need, right? And uh, so, for example, we have a uh, ethnic Ukrainian man here in his 40s saying, "We love that uh, the forest comes right up to the sea. That the sea is warm and inviting." We know this. We know that, the, that on warm days in November, we can run down to the sea and go swimming. So we know Crimea and love it for the, for the, uh, for the way it is. Not because it's Ukrainian either. It's beyond a national label. It's ours, we live there, and we love it. So again, this sort of you know strong sense of place, emotional connection to the land, um, but it doesn't go as deep as the, the Crimean Tatars connection. Um, there are cases where there's a confluence of um, or, or a solidarity, you might say, among Crimean Tatars and Slavic Crimeans being part of a single sort of dis, uh, mass of displaced people, right? Especially when contrasted with the experiences of the IDPs from the Donbass. Um, there's a, you know, they, they share the experience of displacement, they share a connection to Crimea, whether it's, you know, the steep Crimean Tatar one or, a, or the, the lighter Slavic connection, but there's, there is a sense of, of solidarity um, around those ideas here. And I'll, I'll keep skipping ahead here. Um, but at the same time, there's also some political divisions among the, uh, the Crimean IDPs, um, primarily around this idea of what happens to Crimea if and when it returns to Ukraine. Now, this is a big if. This is purely hypothetical, right? There's no indication that this is happening anytime soon. 
uh, Framing IDPs are remarkably optimistic, at least they were a few years ago, that this will happen in the near future. I don't share their optimism, but uh, they, they, they seem set on this idea. And so there's this, uh, this debate over what happens uh, when Crimea returns to Ukraine. And there's been a proposal by some of the Crimean Tatar leaders that they should symbolically go ahead and declare Crimea uh, a Crimean Tatar national autonomous region. Now, it was autonomous and, uh, under Ukraine before, but not, it wasn't a, a national autonomy like many of the autonomous regions of the former Soviet Union. So they're saying we should go ahead and declare you know, the Crimean Tatars as the, the indigenous people and sort of the, the uh, uh, stewards of the land in this case. Um, and then once Crimea returns, then they can begin to implement it. Right? And they've already gone ahead and erected a sign on the border as you approach uh, Crimea. It says, well, uh, the uh, Ukrainian Crimean Tatar Autonomous Republic welcomes you. Right? Um, now, in my survey results, I asked if they were supported this idea. 84% uh, of Crimean Tatars support it, not surprisingly. Uh, only 39% of uh, Slavic Crimeans support it. So there's some, uh, some breaks here politically and ideologically about what Crimea means uh, to the state of Ukraine if and when it, it, it returns. Uh, and I won't read this whole quote, but it just points that there are still some of these lingering stereotypes and apprehensions about Crimean Tatars among Slavic Crimeans. As somebody repeated this idea, like, oh, they might want to, you know, join with Turkey if they get this chance. So, so there are some some solidarities, but also some divisions within the Crimean IDP population. Now, brings me to my last. It's a big quote here, but it really gets at this idea uh, again about diaspora and whether or not these. Uh, so this uh, tension between being, on the one hand, Ukrainian, and on the other hand, being Crimean, uh, whether that tension is going to be something that lasts into the future, whether or not, um, you know, after some time, they might just forget their Crimeanness and just become Ukrainians, right? Um, and there is a distinction here. There's, I think, Crimean Tatarness is the way of identifying as Crimean that's going to be more enduring, given the sort of the depth that I that I described, uh, whereas the relative. Uh, superficiality of Crimeanness is the one that's more likely to dissipate as time goes on and sort of relieve that tension between being in place and out of place. So this is a quote from an ethnic Ukrainian man that gets right to the same point. He sort of outlines exactly what I just said. He says, I think that for Crimean Tatars, are there all their social upbringings since childhood, their social fixation, the entire idea of the Crimean Tatar national movement was the return to Crimea. Now when they lose Crimea while still living there, or because they're not welcomed and are forced to leave, for them, this idea becomes very relevant again, like Jews returning to Israel, like the Zionist movement. The Crimean Tatars have, uh, have this movement in Crimea, the return to Crimea. Even if they lived in Uzbekistan for a few generations, they returned to Crimea all the same. Now, if they will live in exile in Ukraine for a few generations or anywhere else besides Crimea, uh, for them, there will still be this idea of returning to Crimea and, and creating their own government. For them, this is a fixed idea. I think that for other ethnic groups, with time and after some generations, this idea will lose its relevance. If, for example, it's relevant for me today, in 10 years it may not be so relevant for my children or for their children. We understand that our regional identity can be lost. For the Crimean Tatars, their identity is not founded only on the fact that they lived in Crimea. It is much deeper than this. It's religious, linguistic, cultural, etc. This will always motivate them to return to Crimea, and this will be preserved. I think the regional identities of Crimeans from different ethnic groups will erode away with time. They will become Kievans, Ukrainians, Cosmopolitans, some might go to Israel, some might go somewhere else. Assimilation will happen much more quickly. So he's not talking about this idea of diaspora there specifically, but I think what he says really you know, is relevant to this question about diaspora. It's, with, it's, it's this time dimension, whether or not this tension between being in place and out of place that's sort of at the heart of the, this diasporic uh, condition that I'm, that I'm getting at, you know, with time, that tension can break for some and, uh, and not for others. So, to bring this all together here with some of my concluding points that I make in my dissertation. Uh, what I call the schismatic sense of territorial belonging to Crimea and Ukraine as a whole, uh, generating a sense of being simultaneously in place and out of place, uh, produces this translocal diaspora condition. I also point that, to the idea that diaspora is not merely a label, but a discourse and a process. Its salience to socio-spatial identity is manifested in certain places and at certain times, and may discursively include and exclude certain peoples in the process. Uh, I argue that a pan-ethnic diasporic condition does emerge in certain cases among Crimean IDPs when and where solidaristic bonds coalesce around political imperatives like Crimean status as part of Ukraine and its deoccupation, uh, but that Crimean Tatarness is a more deeply rooted and resilient way of identifying as Crimean, and Crimean Tatars are therefore likely to remain diasporic for longer, while Slavic Crimeans may gradually lose their sense of Crimeanness in this sort of diasporic tension.
And so just to end on one uh, last small quote that really gets at the sort of liminality, the sort of duality at the heart of this diaspora condition that I'm talking about, I asked this Crimean Tatar interviewee, I said, do you feel like you're at home here in Kiev or in the mainland of Ukraine in general? She says, it's a two-sided feeling. This is my country. This is the capital of my state, because by no means did I ever imagine that Crimea is not a part of Ukraine. I don't feel that I am away from home, but at the same time, this is not my home. And I will stop there. interesting. Um, to the first point, um, <clears throat> there are certainly members of people that I interviewed that had been born in Central Asia. Very few, the, the older generation, say that the, the elders who had been born in Crimea then were, uh, then were deported and then eventually came back. That's uh, rather small. And sure. for the most part, those uh, elders uh, decided not to, to relocate. You know, in many cases, it was a choice, right? They, they, could, you know, they weren't forced out uh, by a violent conflict the way that uh, those from the Donbass were. And for many of those elders, especially, there was a sense like we struggled for so long to get back to Crimea. We're not going to give that up now, despite the, the the changes that have occurred. So I think actually the only person I interviewed who was born in Crimea, then deported and returned, was uh, Mustafa Jamila, the leader, who was I think three months old <laughs> when the deportation happened. So not maybe not the best example, but he, uh, you know, is clearly an elder statesman, the elder statesman of the Crimean Tatar community. Um, who's very very insightful to interview. But yeah, for the most part, those those who would really experience the entire length of the de of the deportation have largely remained in, in uh, Crimea. And the fact that the average age of Crimean Tatars is so much younger uh, than other groups, and that it, it also reflects this idea that it's mainly the younger people among the Crimean Tatars who have left. Uh, and as to the point of uh, sort of developing civic nation uh, nationalism within other transnational diasporas, that is, I mean, yeah, I, I I haven't looked at too deeply at the literature on that on that topic. I mean, uh, yeah, it gets to the point of a, of an identity of identity within diaspora generally, and to what extent you become a part of the community of the national community uh, in the place that you you've resettled, um, and that's you know it's a slow going process. I think in most cases maybe happens more quickly in some places than others. Right? It might be um, quicker that happened in, in a country like the United States, perhaps, where you do have a, already a large multi-ethnic population uh, made of migrant communities largely. Um, but I think in those cases that the it's, it's, a, it's a much longer, uh, more difficult process where you've gone so far from home and you're so far removed and that you sort of cling to your, your communities of, of co-nationals or co-ethnic peoples in this new place. So there's parallels there, but I think it's, it's easier to see the loot, the um, dissolving of the Crimeanness into the into the uh, Ukrainianness here in this case. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks. I really enjoyed this a lot, and uh, it was really rich with uh, this combination of your survey data and these ethnic um, uh, descriptions mm -hmm. uh, of these people's identities. Um, I guess my question is, um, uh, I, I felt like there's sort of a lot of superstructure here, if you will, and I kind of want a little bit more uh, base, you know, so to speak. So, could you talk a little bit about sort of following the money, like what the Um, sure. Well, as I had mentioned, sort of the motivations behind the displacement, and to some extent it was economic in a way. A lot of people had, um, you know, the, those who were connected to the tourism industry in particular had, had sort of lost uh, a lot of their income. Um, 
but I, I'll be honest, I didn't focus too much on the economic question uh, with regard to the, the people that I, I interviewed. Um, I will say that for the most part, because they generally had time to prepare, right? They weren't they weren't you know urgently forced out, but the way uh, they were from the IDPs from the Donbass were, many of them sort of had the time and the and the, the to sort of plan their their uh, um, dis, you know their relocation uh, to look ahead to find housing to find employment, um, and so they generally a little better off uh, in that sense, and have they been able to. Um, you know, find a good grounding in the mainland. Uh, and also among a lot of the uh, Crimean IDPs, as I mentioned, they sort of represent this, this um, you know, urban educated elite in many cases. There are many um, you know, journalists, many activists, those who have these sort of most white collar professions who have been able to uh, more easily find, uh, find work in, in uh, the mainland than, than maybe some others have. So um, yeah, there's, there's certainly economic motivations uh, and on the on the, the, the you know sending end especially, but uh, it's something I, that would be worth digging deeper into for sure. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Along the same lines, can you say more about how if you ask people about why they made the choice to leave? Because I guess something I'm a little bit struggling with is um, if somebody could stay or leave and they choose to move to Ukraine per se, I, I would just expect they have to have some likelihood of identifying with Ukraine or wanting Ukrainian citizenship, because otherwise, why why leave? And you kind of said that, but it just seems like that would seem like you're selecting people that really have real interest in moving to Ukraine. So maybe if you could say more about what, why people left or what the what the route was or how they how, how that actually unfolded. Sure. Uh, yeah, that was, I would say that uh, to some extent, at least among all the IDPs from Crimea, there is a sense that they a, a preference for Ukraine uh, over over Russia. Right? There's, of course, there's economic considerations behind it, but a lot of times when I ask people, you know, what what motivated you to leave, it really came down to ideo ideological questions. Like I am uh, opposed to living under Russia. I I'm opposed to taking Russian citizenship on principle, especially for a lot of Crimean Tatars. Uh, there's, um, you know, this this really uh, strong negative reaction to the um, the way that uh, sort of this, the social atmosphere changed in Crimea with the with the annexation, a lot of people described sort of this like really rampant, sort of aggressive Russian chauvinism that that cropped up with, uh, among a lot of the, the citizens of Crimea, and so there was a real visceral reaction to that. Alongside, you know, you're right, this sort of already uh, preconceived idea of being part of Ukraine and a preference for for staying Ukrainian, and so yeah, there is there's already some self selection here that those who did come to the mainland already have the sense that they are part are you know they have a belonging to the Ukrainian state have a preference for remaining within the Ukrainian state rather than Russia so yeah that's I've, I've been asked this before that like oh why don't you talk to people who stayed too right there are those who maybe if not having a preference for, for Russia maybe felt rather indifferent and then figured it was easier um, just to remain and that's it's a good criticism and it certainly would be helpful to have a more well-rounded picture here, but given the limitations of doing field work there and, and getting sort of honest answers out of people living under this, you know, rather harsh authoritarian um, situation, it makes it difficult to really do. And there have been some surveys conducted in occupied Crimea that I'm rather critical of and that, you know, some of the responses indicate that they're, they're really giving answers that they think the, the survey takers want to hear rather than something honest. So it's just the limitations of, of, the, of the political situation make it difficult to assess both sides of it, you know. But I'm sorry, just to pull up, did you ask people like how they came to the decision to move? Or, you know, just like, what did they do? Like, did they have any expectation of going back? Did they bring one suitcase? Did they take all their stuff? I mean, I'm just kind of hmm. curious, like, do they consider it a permanent move? Do they think they're ever moving back? I, wait, I've actually, I've got some bonus slides here that uh, I have just in case some of these questions come up. Uh, so. Uh, the point of social engagement with Crimea. Uh, in fact, a lot of people uh, make return trips. They've, they've left, they've, re they've relocated to mainland Ukraine, but um, they've certainly not stayed away from Crimea altogether. Uh, if you look here across the board, um, you know, uh, two-thirds or more of a survey respondents said that they have been back to Crimea since, since they left initially. And in many cases, it's, you know, five times or more. So there is a lot of coming and going, right? The border there is a lot more porous than I think people realize now that it is possible 
at least for Ukrainian citizens, to come and go. It's sort of a hassle when I get into the, the you know, the, the process of going across the border, as people described it. Um, but uh, many people still have family there, right? Many people, I, get, I did get into this sort of question of whether or not their family and friends back in Crimea supported their move. Among Crimean Tatars, it was a lot higher, actually, in understanding, even though that they're leaving the homeland, and it's this, you know, very important place, that this is really, you know, there, there aren't many options left for them anymore. So they had the support of their families, much more so than, say, Russians did, right? Only uh, about 40% of Russians said their families support them. So most still do have family left, so they didn't, they didn't unless, in the, except in the cases of, you know, whole families that did literally pick up all their belongings and, you know, drive with a truck across the border. In many cases, it was, you know, students, younger people who, Maybe yeah, just had a minimal amount of stuff that, that you know moved to mainland and then have been coming and going since then. And then just to follow up on that, because it seems to me that that I, and I was wondering, how do you go from Ukraine to to Crimea? Is yeah. there a, a special visa regime? Do you have to go to Russia and then through? Mm -hmm. uh, is it a, are these surreptitious visits? No, it's, um, it's still possible just as a Ukrainian citizen to cross the border. There is now a, a, border, you know, a, a border check and a, and a regime of crossing the border. Um, there are no longer direct trains to Crimea. The trains that once went all the way to Simferopol now terminate in uh, Nova Alexeyevka, is a town just to the north of, uh, of the Crimean border. And so the, the, either you take a train to there or, or to um, Kherson, another major city in the south of Ukraine, and then you take a bus to one of two borders and you get out and you get in line and you go through Ukrainian uh, customs and then you walk across a no man's land in between and then you go through uh, Russian customs and then you have to find uh, transportation on the other side. So it's a long process. Many people I spoke to have talked about being sort of pulled aside and interrogated, especially uh, Crimean Tatar men especially seem to have, have uh, uh, had that issue come up more than others. Um, so it's, they don't need any sort of special permission, though sometimes there's, there's issues with their, their registration. You know, oh, you're registered in Crimea, but you live in the mainland now, and so there are questions about that. So it's, there's always a bit of, of, uh, of a worry and apprehension about making this border crossing. They're always kind of you know, not uncertain of how it's going to go. But despite all this, they, as they show here, they do, they do tend to come and go quite a bit. So it's, it's contentious and it's, it's tricky, but, it, but it, you know, movement still happens. Yes. Uh, yes, please. Something that would uh, be relevant, maybe to whether people uh, decide to leave. Uh, can you say something very general about uh, where the uh, different groups fall on the socioeconomic level, the occupation occupation groups within within Crimea or within among Crimea? Yes. Um, sure. Uh, I mean, Crimean Tatars generally because. You know, they've, they've only been back for a, a few decades at this point. They returned to find their former lands occupied by mm -hmm. Russians and Ukrainians, their homes and their, their lands occupied. So they, they had this long campaign of just struggling to regain access, not to their original property, but just to, to have land. So they started this whole campaign of self-seizure, mm -hmm. it was called, of uh, unused former uh, collective farmland that just basically built shacks. Mm -hmm. And after some legal uh, rule that said after X amount of years, you can claim ownership of a piece of land if you physically occupied it for a while. So this is how a lot of these, sort of, a bunch of sort of Crimean Tatar neighborhoods around Simferopol in particular, the capital, have cropped up just in the last uh, few decades. And so I, I don't like to use the word ghetto, but that's getting at what, what a lot of them are like. They're very, you know, they don't have a lot of the services. It took a long time to get electricity and the plumbing into some of these places. Some still don't have plumbing. They're like open sewer pits. Uh, and so generally, uh, the Crimean Tatars fall lower on the socio-economic uh, ladder than their Slavic counterparts. There's certainly some that are more upwardly mobile and have done better for themselves, but as a whole, they're still in a sort of a lower position than, than the Slavs are. And then to follow up on that, if you're thinking about who leaves, mm -hmm. right, there's, there's a, a segment of the population that um, even if they're, they feel forced to leave, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're not finding themselves in, you know, they didn't have the time to sort of think through what are we going to bring, what are our contacts like in Kiev, mm -hmm. set themselves up. So that probably, it seems to me that must fall apart along sort of ethnic lines as well. To some extent, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's going to be a small segment of yeah. Indian Tatars, but. Yeah, and you know, a lot of them do, they had the luxury of, of planning ahead at least a little bit, you know, um, didn't have to 
escape bombing or you know the the, mm-hmm. the violence that was happening in eastern Ukraine. Um, but even so, the cost of relocating, yeah, would be if it, if that's the condition of life, yeah, would be prohibitive. Yeah, and so I think I didn't have a way of really seeing these these cleavages in the survey data, but I would suspect that those with that are more upwardly mobile do have access to, to greater resource financial resources are going to be the ones more likely to, to make this journey. So those who are truly poor and who live in these these more you know destitute conditions are are not going to be able to make this journey and then to relocate as, as well as some others. Unless are. the coercive pressure is so high that they really fall into this uh, this idea of a refugee. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're forced out by those kinds of political and, and cultural yeah. conditions. So for example, yeah, the um, the members of uh, that organization, Hizbut Tahrir, the uh, sort of the fundamental fundamentalist Islamic group, they were, of all the groups that were internally displaced from Crimea, those are probably the ones that had to leave in the most haste, that like, oh, we're now, suddenly our organization is now illegal. We made it illegal overnight with the annexation, so we're now criminals. We've been you know, rendered criminals overnight, and then that, there was a real um, sort of desperate uh, exodus among them in particular. And there's, uh, didn't get a chance to go here and to, to speak to these people, but there's a community of uh, people associated with Hizbut Tahrir uh, living in a small village in central uh, Ukraine that a lot of them have sort of gravitated towards. And I don't know the history of how they ended up here or what it was that brought them there in particular, but some sort of, you know, chain migration effect happening, I think, that, that sort of directed a lot of them towards this place. So I think a lot of, you know, helping each other out and, and to provide, you know, establishing a place where they have some resources available for each other, I think that was a play in, in their case. So those are probably the most the most desperate among the IDPs. Thank you. Thank you.